This series contains occasional references to abuse, sexual misconduct, and other topics that some people might find disturbing. You know, being asked to test for Playmate meant posing naked, so you did have a lot to lose. Marilyn Cole is 21 and on the way to her first Playboy test shoot. The year is 1971, the location, London. George the chauffeur was driving the silver Cadillac. I was taken to this very glamorous house. I didn't know where I was. I'd only been in London a couple of weeks. The car pulls up outside a beautiful townhouse owned by Victor Lowndes, the head of Playboy in Europe and Hefner's right-hand man. The door opened and there was a man in a white jacket with epaulettes and it turned out to be Victor's Italian cook. Marilyn is ushered inside the service entrance. She's impressed by her posh surroundings, but understandably, there's only one thing on her mind. I knew at some point I was gonna to have to take my clothes off and I knew why. I'd volunteered because it meant $5,000. That was a lot of money in 1971. Marilyn says she could have bought three houses, like the one her parents owned. So I knew at age 21 I would be pretty rich and independent. The photographer, Frank Habicht, wastes no time on small talk. Frank Habicht said, well, there's the bathroom, there's the robe. I didn't ask what I would be posing as or how or anything. Marilyn gathers her courage and goes into the bathroom. I thought, well, I'll go in as Marilyn Cole, but if I come out as Marilyn Cole, I will crumble. I would come out covering myself and stooped. <laughs> would not be good. As she prepares for the shoot, she tells herself she's ready to step into the Playmate role. I had to think, okay, I am now going to be a Playboy Playmate, and a Playboy Playmate would not be stooped and hiding her bits. She would come out proud and feeling beautiful. Finally, she opens the door. All I thought was, well, this is it. Marilyn doesn't know it yet, but she'll really need that confidence. She's about to walk into the epicenter of a power struggle that would transform the magazine world forever. I'm Amy Rose Spiegel, and from something else, this is Power, Hugh Hefner, and the Rise and Fall of Playboy. Episode 3. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. The year Marilyn Cole goes for that Playboy test shoot is 1971. 
The dust hasn't settled from Hefner's confrontations with the New York radical feminists on the Dick Cavett show the year before. The role that you have selected for women is degrading to women because you choose to see women as sex objects, not as full human beings. But the critiques from Diane Crothers and her cohort haven't caused Hefner to tone down Playboy. In fact, he feels even more stubborn about his vision than ever. He sticks to the same grandiose rationale behind picturing semi-naked women that he set out in his Playboy philosophy essays. If a person can look at the picture of a beautiful woman and find ugliness there and obscenity, then it can only be that he carries that ugliness and obscenity within himself. But at the start of the 70s, the nudity in Playboy is, by today's standards, very tame. It's all about breasts and gauzy sentimentality. All that's about to change. Playboy had been so successful for so long that they didn't recognize the possibility of a threat. They didn't recognize any kind of competition. There's a new girly magazine on the block, Penthouse. Its founder, Bob Guccione, is a brash, larger-than-life character who has no problem with printing more straightforwardly explicit pictures. Penthouse starts pushing the boundaries of what's considered decent and even legal. We've had something like 62 separate prosecutions mounted against us, not one of which succeeded. Playboy is losing market share to the alluringly sleazy upstart. The two magazines are locked in a brutal competition for readers' eyeballs, each pushing the other to show more and more of women's naked bodies. The pubic wars, as the press brands them, have begun. Penthouse has already published its first ever full frontal nude picture the year before, and sales go through the roof. And between Hefner and Guccione, things get personal. Guccione likens Hefner to an old grandpa, out of step with the times. Hefner dismisses Guccione as an imitator. Uh, the fact that the competition now comes from imitators rather than from some new insight or concept that has caught the fancy of people, I think is, is a very good thing. It's both a tribute to me personally and also much easier to deal with. Hefner is torn. He talks a big game about free speech. He wants to be seen as a dark horse, sticking it to the man with his magazine. And he knows better than anyone that sex sells, and that's why Penthouse is so dangerous. But at the same time, he can't bring himself to abandon the idea of Playboy as an innocent, even romantic oasis. About to wander into the crossfire of the pubic wars is a young woman from a very different world. I was born in Portsmouth on the south coast of England. In 1949, I have a vague memory of the greyness, the bomb sites. Marilyn Cole grew up in the shadow of World War II. My father had joined the Navy before the war. We lived in a tiny house near the Marine barracks. Everyone was military in those days. As she gets older, she catches a few glimpses of other possibilities. Rolling Stones, The Animals, Motown, 
the Beatles had come around. I was out in jazz clubs from the age of 14, wearing long false eyelashes, drinking in pubs around the docks and seeing transvestites and sailors. We knew there was another life out there. But at 21, she's working in a concrete bunker in a train station yard, taking orders for coal. Yes, so you can imagine the sort of dreariness of that. That's when her friend at work makes a wild suggestion. They'll start a new life in London. I said, well, how on earth can I live in London? She said, there's a place called the Playboy Club. She said, I think you just go there and smile a lot and you get a lot of money. This alternative to the coal job at the station is sounding pretty great to Marilyn. But how will her parents react? They didn't say, well, don't darken these doors again. You're going to be a bunny girl or something. No, it was simply mum gave me a loaf of white sliced bread, a cooked chicken, and um, I knew that I could go home the next day. And that's very important in life. Armed with her cooked chicken, Marilyn gets on the train to London to become a bunny. But then her story takes an unexpected turn. She's still a trainee in the club, having her photograph taken along with all the other new bunnies, when the atmosphere in the room suddenly changes. This sort of whirlwind of energy and testosterone and this man suddenly appeared. He had long hair. I think he was wearing a suede fringe waistcoat. His confidence was just mind-blowing and he sort of swept in. This suede whirlwind's name is Victor Lowndes head of Playboy Europe. He's Hefner's most trusted lieutenant, running Playboy's club and casino empire on the other side of the Atlantic. Marilyn just knows he's a tall, charming guy who oozes confidence. And of course, he had this American accent. You know, I didn't know any Americans at that time. Victor scans the scene, catches sight of her, has a quiet word with the photographer, and sweeps right back out again. The photographer explains that Victor wants Marilyn to do a test shoot to be a playmate in the magazine and maybe even a centerfold. And he said, well, you understand that you would get $5,000 if you're successful. And he said, you'd be the second bunny girl in the London club to become a centerfold. So it's, it's a real honor. And I said yes to everything. I mean, in life, you either say yes or no. You take these crossroads, you imagine certain things that may happen, may come true, that don't, some do. And at that point, it was very exciting. So that's how Marilyn ends up stepping out of the bathroom in Victor Lowndes' house, stealing herself for her big shoot. I come out of that bathroom and I thought, if the photographer looks really disappointed, it's going to be awful. And that was my first instinct. And luckily, Frank Havich looked quite delighted. And he posed me against a bookcase in Victor's bedroom, it was, in daylight. And he took a photograph of me standing against a bookcase, completely naked. Marilyn isn't paid for the shoot, and she's left wondering where her pictures will end up. Later, she finds out that Victor has taken them into his own hands. Victor physically took them to Chicago and showed them to Hefner and said, you know, there's this bunny girl in London. These are the test shots I've had taken of her. All I knew was that the general manager 
asked me to his office and said, you're going to be flown to Chicago next week. In just months, Marilyn has gone from taking orders for coal to what could be a whole new life. She lands in Chicago in the winter of 1971 for her centerfold test shoots. This cold air just burned the inside of your nostrils when I stepped out of the airport and it kind of had an odor. It was, I'll never forget it. And there was Jim, the Chicago chauffeur. She has no idea what she's walking into or what Hefner will really be like in person. Little did I know of the extent of the Playboy empire, i.e. the size of it, the wealth of it, the precision of it. I hadn't got a clue. The car pulls up outside the palatial Playboy mansion. As they walk up the steps to the huge front door, something glimmers in the corner of her eye. Oh gosh, bit corny really, this sort of brass plaque. And in Latin, it's it, it translated, it said, don't ring if you don't swing. Marilyn isn't kidding. Si non osilas, noli tintinare. If you don't swing, don't ring. Greeted every person who knocked on the mansion's door. Inside, the decor is just as memorable. This fabulous mansion with suits of armor in the grand ballroom. There was a grand ballroom, a grand hall. And um, it was a sign of, of Hefner's success. Marilyn is shown up to her room where she sits and waits to meet the king of the castle. After the break, Hefner welcomes Marilyn to town in his own unusual way. He phoned me again in the room and said, would you like to have dinner tonight? And we ended up having dinner on his bed. And Marilyn gets ready for the make or break moment, a shoot with Playboy's formidable photo editor. Photographer and the Playmate were not getting along, so I went. And I said to the photographer, just get behind the camera. Have you ever felt like escaping to your own desert island? Jane Gaskin did exactly that, trading in the family home to begin a new life in the tropics. But she soon discovers that paradise has its secrets. I'm Alice Levine, and this is The Price of Paradise, the island dream that ends in kidnap, corruption and murder. Wish you were here? Follow The Price of Paradise now, wherever you listen to podcasts. Welcome to True Spies, the podcast that takes you deep inside the greatest secret missions of all time. Suddenly out of the dark, it's appeared Bin Laden. You'll meet the people who live life undercover. What do they know? What are their skills? And what would you do in their position? Vengeance felt good. Seeing these people pay for what they'd done felt righteous. True Spies from Spyscape Studios, wherever you get your podcasts. Marilyn Cole has just arrived at the Playboy Mansion to test for Playboy Centerfold. She's sitting in her room, waiting to meet Hugh Hefner. She imagines the international playboy will take her out into the city for a glamorous night. The phone in her room rings. It's a soft, low voice. This is Hugh Hefner. Welcome to the mansion. How was your flight? And I said, well, um, I've got to take these eyelashes off. They're stinging. I mean, you know, at 21, you say these daft things. Would you like to join me for dinner? 
And I said, yes, that would be very nice. And I said, um, where are we going? But it quickly becomes apparent that Hefner is not about to leave the mansion that night, or any other night, for that matter. I don't think he'd been to a restaurant for 10 years. He hadn't been out. It's true. Hefner barely ventured out in this decade. He preferred the comforts of home. Vast quantities of prescription uppers and women. Hefner does invite Marilyn for dinner in his bedroom. On his mink-covered bed, on huge trays. I think we had uh, a sandwich, <laughs> some sort of fried chicken. Marilyn is unimpressed by the situation, but she is impressed by Hefner. Well, I was seduced by him. Their intellect was huge. You had to keep up, and then you thought, well, I can't keep up. How can I keep up? She realizes that Hefner doesn't need to leave his mansion. He has this funny magnetism. He, he knew the world would come to him, and indeed people did come to him in droves. You know, all numbers of musicians and actors and movie stars and models and artists, yes, they did go to him. To this 21-year-old from Portsmouth, Hefner seems like a man in total command. But what she doesn't know is that underneath the image, he's under huge pressure. And this impressive, kingly recluse really, really needs her help. Penthouse was the first mass circulation magazine that showed full frontal nudity. It's more sexually adventurous than Playboy. Guccione has more than matched Hefner. The battle with Bob Guccione's Penthouse magazine is reaching a fever pitch. And Hefner is anxious that Playboy is losing. Penthouse is publishing increasingly racy pictures without any faux sweetness or subtlety. And Playboy, with its airbrushed, demure, smiling girls next door, is starting to look vanilla in comparison. Have you been outdistanced? Do you think Playboy is now a rather old-fashioned, staid image? I certainly don't think it's as avant-garde as it was uh, when we began. That's part of um, the price you pay for being the first one uh, in the water, I guess. It's decision time for Hefner. Will he abandon his stance on what he disparaged as gynecological photos? Will he get with the times and compete with Guccione? Look, I came up in the 2000s. I got used to raunch as a way of life as porn became more and more easily available. So all this back and forth about showing pubic hair in a magazine seems like a lot of fuss over not that much. So to clarify just what was at stake back then, let's get a quick history lesson from Dr. Mireille Miller-Young. She's an expert on sexuality and porn. By the 1970s, Playboy became really a major corporation and player because for years it didn't have much competition. But then when the 1970s hits, we see the kind of liberalization of laws around pornography from the Supreme Court basically deciding that pornography is permissible as long as you can prove that it has a kind of social value and isn't just produced for period interest. Now, 
many people at the time were very interested in exploiting that social value clause and trying to present the sexual culture as something that was scientific. There was a real interest in doing anything you could to be scrappy and really innovative to get your pornography out there, and it just exploded. The new wave of porn, which supposedly had social value, caused a political backlash that also swept up Playboy. These aspects of sexual culture, like Playboy, that were seen as really promoting a new kind of body politic in the sexual liberation movement, were seen as being enemies of the state by an increasingly right-wing cultural movement and political movement. We see quite a bit of litigation against porn magazines, porn theaters, bookstores, and places that were seen to be agents of circulating dangerous sexuality. You had President Nixon. This kind of filth, literature, and pornography that is now disseminated across this country, we can do something about it quite hypocritical that he would make a moral argument here, but (laughs) declaring pornography as a crime and as we are going to have a war on porn. And if you know anything about American history, when we declare a war on something, we've already lost it. Nixon's war on porn is kind of a joke. Consider the reaction to the first porn film to be widely shown in mainstream movie theaters in the U.S. Deep Throat. Well, there it is, you little bugger, there it is. What? Your clitoris, it's deep down in the bottom of your throat. Mm. Oh, now, Miss Lovelace. Not only does every person of celebrity and consequence see this show in 1971, they celebrate it. And they do so really to push back against what is a political atmosphere that is deeply fearful of the sexual culture that's emerging. These were the political and social currents pulling Playboy and Penthouse this way and that while they fought for supremacy at the start of the 70s. And this is why Hefner's decision about full frontal nudity feels so momentous. It's a turning point in history. Finally, Hefner makes the call. Playboy will follow Penthouse into full frontal pictures. And Marilyn Cole will be the first. Marilyn, meanwhile, isn't aware that her approaching shoot is so crucial to Playboy. But she's earning good money for rounds and rounds of test shots. They produced this green satin dress and I was had it sort of draped coming off me and then uh, balloons in the background and champagne bottles popping and la-di-da. And then they changed it to something else and something else. And all I knew was that I was getting paid for this. Hefner isn't happy with any of these extravagant new photos. The simple picture of Marilyn in front of that bookcase back in London is what caught his imagination. And he kept going back to that, saying, this is really the one I want. So that's what they did. He orders his people to recreate that photo, but in the mansion in Chicago. And one summer day, Marilyn is shown onto the set. I do remember the heat in Chicago was brutal, and the humidity was brutal. And they had decided to recreate Victor's bedroom with the bookcase 
at the top of the building and it meant going into the chairman of the board's office, which was all oak panelled, um, very stately. This was perfect, they thought, for the English girl. On the other side of the lens, presiding over this landmark event is another Marilyn, Marilyn Grabowski, Playboy's photo editor. She vividly remembers the moment that Marilyn Cole walks into the room. Marilyn Cole had a perfect body. If you diagram somebody that had beautiful breasts, a short waist, long legs, she's, I'd seen pictures of her. And when she came in to the studio, I kind of said, just stand there. While Grabowski is lining up the first shots, Cole is more concerned about the temperature in the room. They built a real fire in the fireplace, so I was almost passing out all the time, and they were sort of fanning me and sending me to the air conditioner and, hey, do some press-ups, you've been eating too much of that good food at the mansion, and all this was going on. Cole must have done an amazing job at looking cool for the camera because Grabowski had no idea she was actually suffering. It was very hot and I was dying. Of course, it didn't bother her. She didn't have any clothes on anyway. Grabowski is under strict orders from Hefner about what works and what doesn't. She knows exactly how to pose and style Cole to deliver the perfect Playboy woman. But I remember looking at her and saying, you don't have to do a thing. Just, you know, use the right lighting and photograph her. For our model, it didn't feel quite so easy. It was more intense for me because I'm standing completely naked and it was 11 days of shooting just for that one photograph because they're perfectionists. Hefner was a perfectionist and so was Marilyn and everybody was. They have to get this right and Grabowski has her doubts. One thing that really bothered me was full frontal nudity because it wasn't just judging the pictures on the fact that they were beautiful. It was judging how much a girl would would show. Well, it was full on because I was full on. <laughs> it was a full on full frontal. In other words, I wasn't showing my bottom. Cole gets comfortable with this. Just to show your body is not that difficult, especially when you're being encouraged, A, by money, and B, by art. It is an art form. What's not easy is to be completely natural. You show your physicality, you show your naked body, but you're not showing your soul. After 11 days of hard work in that boiling room, Hefner and Grabowski are finally satisfied. They have their shot. And in January 1972, Marilyn Cole becomes the first Playboy centerfold to show everything. In front of a roaring fire, Marilyn stands against a bookcase with an open hardcover in her right hand and a smirk on her face. Her skin is extremely bronzed, and the tan lines over where a bikini would go are the main indication that she's naked. Her pubic hair is barely visible. The dark shadow of the book obscures most of it. You can feel how conflicted Hefner was based on the visual compromise here. This is the dictionary definition of a tasteful nude. 
Hefner joining Bob Guccione in publishing Total Nudity changes the landscape of adult magazines. There's no going back from here. Marilyn becomes an instant celebrity. Back home, the British tabloids can't get enough of her. Marilyn Cole, the first British girl to display all. Big break for British Bunny. Cole, the curvy cover girl. The picture also passes muster with Marilyn's two most important critics. First thing mum looked at and said, oh, your hair looks nice, ignoring the fact I was naked. And dad said, this is lovely. It's like a Rubens. I'm going to take it around and show them at the pub. Marilyn has achieved her goal of making $5,000 and so much more. She goes on to become Playmate of the Year in 1973. Every day, she's getting offers of work and invitations to parties. And she's not just fielding interest from Playboy's readers. Well, I think the rivalry between Victor and Hefner, it, was, it, it may have manifested itself with me at one point. Marilyn is attracting attention from both Hefner and Playboy's man in London, Victor Lowndes. But of course, if you really scratch the surface... It was about ego and power and male rivalry, wasn't it? But Hefner is fighting a losing battle. Ever since that very first moment, when Victor waltzed into the room back in London, Marilyn is smitten. His passion was intoxicating. His personality was intoxicating. Someone said once, wherever Victor sits, it became the head of the table. So of course, when his light shone on me, that was it. She dates Victor and eventually marries him, becoming Marilyn Cole Lowndes. They are the power couple of Playboy Europe. Hefner doesn't take this defeat well. It's not just sexual and romantic jealousy. It's the frustration of having a superstar couple dimming his own Playboy fame. I think Hefner had this slightly jealous streak or envy. He had to have it all. Hefner has to suck it up. Victor is a law unto himself, and Hefner is never quite able to bring him under his spell. And Marilyn, as you can probably tell, is not someone easily cowed by Hefner. She and Victor remain married until he dies in 2017, which is the same year Hefner passes away. We're going to hear more about Victor Lowndes later in the series, but next, I'm so excited for you to get to know our other Marilyn. Marilyn Grabowski, Playboy's photo editor, came from a dangerous childhood and rose to a position of huge power, casting and photographing generations of American bombshells. That's coming up after the break. In the 1970s, John Todd burst onto the evangelical scene with a shocking tale. He claimed to be a former witch involved in a then unheard of secret organization called the Illuminati and urged Christians to prepare for a violent world takeover. First of all, the number one weapon in everybody's home should be a 12-gauge pump shotgun. Hear the amazing story of one of the originators of the modern-day conspiracy theory. From Magnificent Noise and Sony Music Entertainment, this is Cover Up, The Conspiracy Tapes. Marilyn Grabowski joins our conversation wearing braided pigtails and a bejeweled butterfly tank top. 
She's cheery and fun. So it's especially striking to hear her say, right off the bat, that her path to becoming a Playboy big shot was long and hard. It all started in upstate New York in the 50s. I got straight A's in school. I left home as soon as I graduated from high school because my father had a gun and he was starting to kill me. Oh, my God. (laughs) How's that for a beginning? Marilyn had called the police on her father after he assaulted her severely disabled brother. I lived in fear every day until they got drunk enough to kill me. She's afraid for her life, and she needs a way out. I went to Syracuse, New York. I never went to college. She gets a boyfriend who lives in Chicago, so she moves over there. By this time, she's in her mid-twenties. And um, my boyfriend had a copy of Playboy. And I looked at it, and I threw it in the waste paper basket. I was so upset that he was actually reading that magazine. (laughs) Had you heard of uh, it before? Yeah, yeah, I'd heard of it, but this was the first time I'd seen it. Her visceral reaction to the magazine lingered. And then, for some reason, I heard there was an opening at Playboy for a secretary to the photo editor. I wanted to see what that dirty magazine was all about. She turns up at the Playboy offices to investigate. And the first thing I realized was all the girls were beautiful. I thought the cleaning ladies even beautiful. The receptionist, everybody, they were all gorgeous. And I took a typing test, and I could type 110 words a minute with no mistakes. So they offered me the job on the spot. And I liked my other job, but I couldn't resist, so I joined Playboy. Was the money better, or was it just the allure? It was the allure. It was, it was kind of magic. There was just a feeling of predestination in a way. But when she eventually meets Hefner himself, it's not ideal. She wants to show off her looks, but she recently had a bad car accident and she has to wear a reconstructive mask. I had a metal plate on my face, like, you know, the man with the iron mask. And I went to a gathering that Playboy had, a little office gathering, and Hef saw me, and he came and put his arms around me, and he said, oh, you poor thing. And my reaction to myself was, he noticed me, he noticed me. Marilyn starts as a secretary, but she wants more action. Before long, she carves out a new role for herself. I heard this commotion in the studio and the photographer and the playmate were not getting along. So I went and I said to the photographer, just get behind the camera, you know, <laughs> like, a, like I was some authority, which I wasn't. And the playmate kind of laughed and that set up a scenario that I used a lot in the future. Marilyn gets promoted to photo editor. And that role involves more than just taking pictures Hefner likes. She has to connect with the models and make them feel safe and comfortable. Because a lot of the girls were a little shy and, you know, didn't know what to do. So I would go in like their ally and tell a photographer to get going or behave himself or whatever. So it became 
a standard operating procedure for me. I got along really well with the playmates, probably because I had such a terrible childhood that I could identify with them. Even if they were had a great childhood, I was, you know, I was one of them. You saw yourself as their protector, in a way? Oh, sure. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. She keeps hustling, and her talent is spotted by other magazines and movie producers. Each time she's offered another job, Hefner moves to keep her at Playboy, and her power only grows. I actually got into the inner circle. She works closely with Hefner to decide every detail of the pictorials. I'd establish the relationship with Hefner, and I'd just show him what I thought was the best picture of pictures. And he always agreed with me, so it was, not always, but most of the time. Did you share his vision of what was sexy and what worked for the magazine? And what was that vision like? Well, you know, Hef was kind of old-fashioned in a way. And that, like, he'd say, why don't you put a brandy snifter in the picture? And I thought, again? <laughs> you know? <laughs> I've tried to develop different things and ways of showing the girls that hadn't been done before. And finally, you know, he got with it. He did. And he trusted me more and more. Another area where she has unmatched influence is finding the women to pose nude in the magazine. She's a total star maker. Pam Anderson, I found being displayed on a big screen at a football game. And I found out who her agency was, which was a little small agency in Vancouver. And uh, found her and brought her down. Wow. Told her I wanted to do a cover. That was the first cover where she was looking academic, I think? Yeah. Yeah. Those were my clothes. Oh, they really were. Wow. <laughs> and then I said to her, you know, if you want to be an actress, just let me know. That's the kind of power Marilyn had. To create one of the biggest beauty icons of our time with a snap of her fingers. But we can't lose sight of Hefner in all this. Marilyn is always aware of his preferences and his demands. He would call me and it'd be yelling at me and I'd hold the phone about a foot away till he stopped yelling and then I'd say, okay, it's your magazine. He'd say, damn right it is. Wow. What would he so be angry was, about? Oh, I don't know, just... A typical boss relationship. Marilyn agreed to deliver the type of beauty that Hefner wanted without compromise. And what he wanted was blonde white women. Yes, we, we try to get some ethnic diversity, but we do seem to lean in the direction of blondes. These preferences are baked into Playboy's aesthetic to the point that Marilyn recruits models across North America for the desired skin types. I discovered that most of the beautiful girls came from Canada. And I think one of the reasons was they had great skin, because they were never in the sun. This is a confusing period in Playboy's story. How can Hefner, the famous anti-racist, be presiding over a magazine that's so exclusionary? Murray Miller-Young, who we heard from earlier, says it points to something rotten at the heart of Playboy. There's a huge contradiction between the ways in which Playboy as a company is 
actually operating and the ways in which they're treating Black people and other people of color and the kind of political causes they're supporting. On the one hand, they seem to be really supportive of many kind of causes around voting rights justice and Black arts and Black political struggles. I think Hugh Hefner was, saw himself very much as an anti-racist. Yet, <laughs> yet the slow, very slow piecemeal inclusion of Black models into Playboy has an extremely oppressive impact, not only on Black models at Playboy, but on the culture. Even when Black models are featured, it's within a narrow idea of what white beauty is supposed to be. In terms of the models for Playboy, Black women tended to have light skin complexion, straighter hair, and of course a very thin or athletic physique, okay? It was not until 1975 that we had the first dark-skinned Black woman who appeared in Playboy, who was Azizi Johari. Murray says the issue went much further than just who got to be a model. Not only prioritizing white models, but producing a kind of white femininity as really the cultural ideal really enforced the idea that, you know, white womanhood is the most desirable image. It also tended to support Black male writers and influencers in its literary section as opposed to Black women or other women of color who were cultural workers and even part of the Black artist movement during the time. I think that the contradiction for Playboy is so profound because they profess this kind of being an, an agent of change in the midst of a sexual revolution, vanguard of civil rights and integration, yet really consistently placing Black women on the bottom and the margins of that revolution. As the 70s roll by, Hefner has no choice but to keep up with the culture. Marilyn Grabowski slowly includes more Black models in Playboy, and her keen understanding of what Playboy should look like keeps paying off for her. Agents and producers and directors, and a lot of people knew who I was. And more than that, Playboy offers her a new family. Hef was like my father. Hef rescued me in a way that he didn't even know he was doing. For Marilyn, the mansion is an idyllic place. She goes misty-eyed when she tells me about sitting with Hefner and watching Ray Anthony, a huge star at the time, perform outside. They were playing, you know, the old big band stuff that was so beautiful. And I had tears in my eyes and Hef reached across the table and put his hand on mine and said, you're the last real romantic. But there's another culture war growing that will shake the world Hefner has created to its core. America's public enemy number one in the United States is drug abuse. Hefner isn't just hit in his wallet, but right in his heart and in his home. It's as close as I've ever seen him being out of control. And he's not the one who's most hurt by this. She was one of the best, brightest, most worthwhile women I have ever known. 
That's next time on Power, Hugh Hefner, and the Rise and Fall of Playboy. If you want to hear more from the incredible women I'm talking to for this series, hit the subscribe button on Apple Podcasts. This week, you'll find an extended cut of my conversation with Marilyn Grabowski. She has tons of stories about her glamorous international photography career and what made the perfect playmate. If you're an Apple Podcast subscriber, you'll also be able to hear ad-free episodes every week. Okay, and here are the people who made our show. Power Hugh Hefner is a Something Else production. It's hosted by me, Amy Rose Spiegel. The series producer is Dave Anderson, and the producers are Georgia Mills, Chica Ayers, and Paul Smith. Our associate producer is Millie Chu. Mixing and sound design come from Sam Baer and Josh Hahn. Mira Sharma and Peggy Sutton are the editors. The executive producer is Peggy Sutton. With thanks to Jen Mystery, Ike Egbatola, Mia Warren, Grant Irving, Lily Hambly, Gulliver Lawrence Tickle, Siobhan Donnelly, Jez Nelson, and Leanne Richardson. If you love the show, follow us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Amazon Music, or wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps new listeners find the show. <laughs>